On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. And hello, welcome to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with your host, Brent Mikosh. Brent, I'm beyond excited for this episode of your podcast today because you have what is hands down one of my favorite people in the entire universe is your guest. So please take it away. Well, well, Billy, you made this possible. So so thank you for, for getting Carol on here. So I've got Carol Roth on. And we'll start that she's a recovering investment banker is generally how, how she uh, introduces herself. She's got well over a billion dollars, probably a lot more than that of transactions under her belt. Now, really well-known media figure. You've seen her obviously on, on you know, Fox Business, a lot of other television shows across a number of digital platforms. And as someone that's actually written a book myself, what really impresses me is that she's written three books. I think, Carol, I think are all three New York Times bestsellers? Only, only two of the three. Only two of the three. I've got a, a a pretty good batting average, but didn't get that middle one. So, well, you know, and I, I really want to dive into the content of these books today because you know you went from Entrepreneur's Equation back probably now about twelve years or so, maybe 2011, That book came out, and then you went to um, a, a topic that was really, really close to my heart here in Arizona when. The economic situation that we had as a result of, and I'm not going to say as a result of COVID, I'm going to say as a result of what the policies were were put in place around COVID. And so so we can start there and, and chat about that book, which came out in 2020. And then you've got a new one, You Will Own Nothing, which um, I'm just wrapping up as I got about maybe 20% of that book left. But I want to talk about that as well. So before we kind of dive into the content and some of the things that that, that you've been discussing, not only just on, on TV, but on radio do you want to give us a little bit of background, a little bit more about yourself for maybe some listeners that aren't as familiar with you as uh, Bill and I are? Sure. Well, uh, I am a collector of experiences. I have a, a resume that sort of doesn't make sense to anybody else uh, except for me, perhaps. And some days it doesn't even make sense for me. Uh, but I come from a blue collar family and my dad was an electrician and he was very financially savvy, but didn't have a traditional education. And so I got interested in financial topics um, when I was you know, quite young. And uh, funny enough, I attribute part of my interest in finance, the fact that we used to go to the bank on Saturdays. I don't know if you did that, but like I would go with my dad and they had uh, donuts, little donut holes and lollipops. And so I was always looking forward to the bank trip. And then I had a bunch of piggy banks and stuff. So I don't know that I feel like that made me interested interested in financial topics, but having the blue collar background and seeing just in a couple of generations, you know, my grandma going through the Great Depression and washing paper plates to my dad kind of struggling and, you know, being kind of very solidly middle class. Um, and then me having this opportunity to like really seize the American dream. 
I, I took that opportunity very personally. So it, it's one of the things that I spend a lot of time just trying to defend that for other people because, you know, my dad, as I said, neither of my parents graduated from college, but I was able to go to Wharton. I came out with about $40,000 of college debt in the mid 90s, which um, is, you know, the average of what college debt is today for uh, those who have it. And I paid that down a year and a half. And went through sort of this, you know, crazy, um, sh- you know, shift of careers, you know, as a deal maker. Um, by the time I was 25, I was a, a VP and an officer and in, you know, major investment bank. Um, still, you know, I call myself recovering because you never really get out of the deal making business. I still act as a consigliere for private equity firms and other C-level executives when they look at deals. And people are always asking me to kind of get them involved in the middle of things. But I never wanted to be the world's best investment banker. I went into that because I was interested in business and finance and the economy. And that was a great way to get a lot of experience. Um, and then, Brent, I wanted to be a game show host, but that didn't really work out for me. So I uh, ended up commentating on TV instead about other things that aren't nearly as fun as giving away, you know, boats and cars and cash and the like, and, you know, got dragged into even some political commentary when Mitt Romney ran for president in 2012, because they needed somebody who could explain what private equity was, you know, back in the day, the social media wasn't what it was today. The internet wasn't really as developed and people hadn't even heard of that as much. So that's how I kind of got dragged into the middle and uh, your producer, Bill, knows this, having been on the show, but I'm a little bit of a class clown. I didn't know anything about politics at the time. So I you know, could explain the business stuff. And then anytime a political question would come up, I would just make a joke about it. And unfortunately, <laughs> over time, have gotten far too in the weeds on that stuff. But I'm just a curious person by nature. So I've collected all these experiences. I act as the... Um, outsource chief customer officer for a company in the collectibles industry. I sit on boards, I make investments, I write an economic newsletter, uh, I write books. I got my hands in a lot of different things. Uh, I have a, a, a legacy and wishes planning system called Future File. Um, so, you know, I just, I try to keep busy. I have a great team that supports me. And um, it's kind of hard to explain what this career is, but it's just, you know, it's information, it's entertainment, and it's making people money. That's sort of the the Venn diagram, if you will. Well, I think, you know, your, your point, having that blue collar background, um, that's quite frankly, one of the reasons that I'm in this business, because it is really that entrepreneurship, that ability to control your own property, which I'm sure we're going to discuss today, but that idea that you're not limited by where you came from that in this country you've had the opportunity to move forward invent do great things that to me is what i'm passionate about and and walking along with you know business owners as as they as they endure some of the challenges that uh that that they face and and some of those challenges you know they're become a lot greater today and we can kind of start let's before we get in your most current book let's talk about the war on small business because this is a topic that um is really near and dear to me but quite frankly still still makes me angry in terms yeah. of how we responded as a country when the pandemic came along and not to diminish the the impact that it had but the idea to me you know having grown up with my grandfather was an entrepreneur and working with entrepreneurs in my career the idea to me that the government can come in and say your business is not essential you are shut down 
was absolutely appalling. And so was that something that kind of caused you to to write this book? Because this was in 2020, I think. This thing was this released in 2020? Was it that it was soon? Released in, in 2021. Okay. But I was approached in 2020. Um, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I had written a piece worried about small businesses in March because March of 2020, I could see the writing on the wall. I heard the rumblings of what the different entities were talking about. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be bad. You know, there's a path here. If you want to do it, there's a right way to do it. And it's short and it's quick and it gets us to a clear endpoint. And, you know, that didn't happen. But because I had written that up, Ed, and because I had sort of a, a credible voice in a sort of nonpartisan way around economics and finance, HarperCollins um, approached me and they said, we think this is going to be a historic economic time and we'd like somebody to chronicle it. Uh, would you be willing to do that? And like an idiot, I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. Not Another realizing, <laughs> you know, how intense this was going to be, how long it was going to go on, um, how the information was going to change, it, you know, even just from what you think you heard to what was, you know, ultimately reported. So in that period of time, where I was chronicling it between the time I, I wrote the book, started writing in, in 2020 till releasing it in the mid, middle of 2021, because we had to pick an end date. I wrote like three and a half different books, just chronicling wow. all the different pieces. And we all, we had, by the way, three different titles. We had The Looting of America, Too Big to Succeed. And then we sort of ended up on the war on small business because it was there was so much going on. And so we just wanted to take one perspective. I actually think maybe it should have been called the looting of America, but you know, the, the hindsight's 2020. At any rate, um, but we decided to kind of focus, given my passion for small business and, and my history as an advocate, because you know, really there was such a clear uh, delineation and what was done based on who had the clout and connections and who didn't. You know, they kept saying we were all in this together, uh, and we were not. You know, if you were not not any data and science, but if you you were a, a big company and you you know gave lots of money to lobbyists, you could keep your business open, but you couldn't if you were the same small business next door. You could get your pet's nails done and, and it's fur trimmed at a big box retailer, but you could not get your hair trimmed and nails done at a small business. Uh, by the way, if you were a small business that sold weed and liquor that benefited the states, you could stay open. So there were all of these like very clear things that you know, those who were not on the inside were having their rights trampled on. Uh, my opinion, and the, I think the first person to bring this up was actually Scott Lincecum of Cato. You know, this was an eminent domain issue. This was taking property for the public good and not compensating small businesses. I always hear like, oh, they got a bailout. No, no. <laughs> they did not get a bailout. First of all, they did nothing wrong. They had their, their rights taken away from them. And the compensation that they received was not adequate to compensate them for their losses. Now, were there a lot of was there a lot of fraud that happened? Was it a horribly designed program? Did they waste a lot of money? Absolutely. But that's not the small business's fault. That's the government's fault. And many of us spoke up, you know, from the beginning, um, who said that. In fact, I was one of the people which I'm sure they really appreciated, but I hate them, so it doesn't matter, um, who put the pressure on Harvard to give back 
their funding when they had, you know, at the time, whatever it was, a close to $40 billion endowment. Um, and I always said that Harvard was a hedge fund with a university attached to it. And you start saw all this money that was going to these, these crony institutions. And it's like, why does Harvard need any money? And I think Princeton was the first to fall and then Stanford. And then because um, one of my followers had done the initial digging and I made a big deal about it and a bunch of even bigger people picked it up. It actually made its way to President Trump at the time who said something about it, even though it was his DOE that gave them the money and you know put the pressure on them to give it back. But again, drop in the bucket. So you know that that was the kind of, of stuff that I was seeing real time. And I'm really glad that I had a chance to chronicle what happened because so many people have tried to rewrite the story or tried to, you know, call things bailouts that weren't. And so I think it's important to to go back and really be able to go through what happens. And it's it's not a, a happy story. It's a, a blood boiling kind of story. And I think we'll be looked back on at history as a, a real critical turning point in our economy and not in a good way. Yeah, I, I agree with you because it did a couple of things. Like you said, it it absolutely stole people's personal property, you know, and, and business property. So it was an eminent domain case. It wasn't really treated as eminent domain because as you said, it wasn't fair value. And the sense, I mean, now I was very fortunate. I was in the state of Arizona. I think that in terms of the handful of states that did things mostly right, I would put Arizona in with that. I had some, I recall some friends of mine visiting from New York and New Jersey, you know, at some point the middle and middle toward the end of 2020 and they like couldn't believe it you know that we, we were essentially <laughs> were pretty much back to normal at this point so we didn't we didn't feel it as acutely out here and, I, and, I'm, and i'm grateful that this is where my family was during that period of time but to your point the repercussions i mean we're feeling them today in the sense of you had you know just look at the federal debt and we can we can chat on this for a little while i think when, when trump came in we had maybe 19 trillion dollars of federal debt by the time Trump was gone, it was $26 trillion, and a lot of that came in the back end of this because of the pandemic response. And that got us on this path where suddenly it it, it became okay to, to not not like the finance, not like the GFC, where you had hundreds of billions of dollars that were issued as an emergency stopgap measure. Now it's trillions. Yeah. And there are these repeated bills over and over and over again. And I do think that it fundamentally it, it, it changed the thing. It changed the world economically, changed the country economically. And it did it during a period of time where you intentionally broke the supply chain. So you've got all kinds of cash now flooding into an economy where there's a scarcity of goods because we shut the whole thing down. So surprise, you know, <laughs> what, what, what happened? And then, and, then and then stimulus checks where they go, oh, I can't believe that that stimulated the economy when it's called a stimulus check. Oh, really? What did you think it was going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it also, it too, it, it, in, it, whether it was an experiment with universal basic income, because you had basically, you know, you had checks given out to a lot of people, but it also really changed. It, it changed also, I think, the culture of the country in a sense where you now made it OK to not be out working. I, I don't know if I'm articulating that well, but do you feel the same way I do about that? I mean, I think about the whole thing. <laughs> so yeah. check, 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 nod, you know, agree. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, this was the most historic wealth transfer from Main Street to Wall Street of all time. You know, as you talk about these, you know, quote unquote, emergency measures, um, the first measure that was put in place was to support Wall Street, which was a joke, um, which, you know, gave 
the legs to letting this continue, um, you know, it made those legs longer, right? If, if Amazon's warehouse had been shut down, if you couldn't get your groceries, if the stock market wasn't supported, 15 days to slow the spread would have been 15 days at the, at the longest. It wouldn't have gone on. Then we would have all gotten to mitigation, which is where we got to anyway. And, you know, we could have moved on without shuttering a third of the economy and having all those ripple effect issues with supply chain and stimulus and whatnot that you that you spoke about. And, yeah, I think that, you know, on top of all of those things that added to the debt burden that normalized this, you know, crazy deficit spending, you know, that broke the supply chain, you know, all those things, the cultural shift was also intense. You know, we still, I do think, have people who are still mentally not well because of having the world shift in such a meaningful way by mandate. And, you know, you just feel it when you go out places, like people are just not wholly themselves in large part. And then, yeah, you have a culture where work from home became the norm and people are like horrified that they have to go back to the office. Um, The people who had the privilege to do that, obviously many people have, have to show up or they don't have a job. So it really did kind of shift the expectations from people on what was acceptable. And again, not in a positive, productive way, something that sort of moved us in the the opposite direction. So we have the legacy impact of that on top of the legacy impact of the Fed intervening in markets for nearly 15 years, nine of that with zero interest rate policy and the rest of that with close to zero interest rate policy. And I just don't think that we've fully seen that work its way through the system yet or the you know the the change in policy either because because we did have 15 years and so many people took advantage of that low cost financing i just don't think that we've seen fully the the expectations of oh you know why is it that things haven't broken quite yet because businesses and individuals loaded up on debt for 15 years at no cost and it hasn't worked its way through the system um we're still we're still not in late innings yet i think we're kind of solidly in the middle of the game yeah, I think, you know, you talk about obviously the, the, the zero or close to zero interest rate policies we had and pretty much everybody that could, which was pretty much everybody, they refinance what it's, you know, business personal, they refinance right. their debt in 2020, 2021. And so I get, I get asked this question a lot is when is this going to be a problem? And I think it's a 2025, maybe 2026 problem, but we don't know. And it really depends right. on do rates stay here and how high do they stay? But but the impact is not only going to be in terms of corporations that are going to have, there's, there's a lot of zombie companies out there. They're going to have to refi a lot of debt. Yeah. There's a lot of empty commercial space, depending on specifically where you are in the country that, that, that is, is looking at, you know, how, how, what are we going to do? And I think that'll be a different situation in the commercial space. The banks don't want to own this stuff. I think there's going to be workarounds and everything, but, but can you work around on a property that's empty? You know, because the call centers have all been sent home right. and, the, and, and the operations people have all been sent home. Can, can so, you turn it into an Amazon warehouse? Can you turn it into housing for ind- families and individuals? I mean, those are the kinds of questions that you're going to have to ask. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a lot of that. And I think just even in terms of the movement of people, you know, I was even having a conversation with my father the other day and he said to me, he's like, he's like oh, when, you know, when you're your wife going to move? And I was like, dad, we put our house in 2016, we refied in 2020. <laughs> you know, I was right. like, 
you know, it's, it's two thousand so and never. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it basically, it kind of, you know, you're you're sort of locked in. So to your point, I think it's going to be repercussions. But from a debt standpoint, to me, where we're seeing this really bear fruit now is, um, you know, we had a treasury auction that occurred. Thank you. <laughs> earlier this week, and and it wasn't. Now I, I'm not in the hyperbole, and 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 I will close with something more positive once I get done venting on all this stuff. But it wasn't a great auction. You know, these yeah. things should be 2.5 times covered. This was like maybe a 2.2, the tail on it, which you don't want a positive tail. It was kind of positive, meaning that um, they had to dig into those those buyers of last resort a lot more heavily than they needed to. And that was earlier this week on 30 year paper. Yeah. And you, you got to you got to ask yourself now with with when I was looking at the the finances of the federal government. With fifty basis point ten year debt, well, you can borrow in, in, in to infinity almost, which is what they tried to do. But four and a half percent debt now, now you got an issue. Thirty four trillion dollars, you know, average cost of debt maybe three and a half percent. Now it's a trillion bucks. It's a lot of money. So what what do you think is going to happen from a, the ability that the federal government, the U.S. government, is going to have to finance this debt and continue to do that? Oh, this is like center of what I've been spending all my time on. And I was never really a bond geek before, but I feel like uh, where all I've the been, action is now. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I've been forced to, um, you know, to become one. So there's so many interesting data points. You know, you talked about the auction and the fact that the um, prime dealer, primary dealers are the ones who had to absorb even more. We're basically forced to take on more of the debt in order for the auction to go off. One of the things I don't know, you know, how much you've gotten in the weeds on is who has really been the buyer of our debt, you know, on an ongoing basis. And and before tw- 2014, you know, you had a lot of central banks um, right. around the world as well, well as foreign investors who are really buying it all um, and not requiring you know that much, um, you know, from the the Fed or you know anywhere else. Once you um, hit 2014, that all dried up. And that's where you saw the Fed really stepping in, accelerating as a buyer. Now that they are technically not a buyer, let's just pretend that, you know, forget about their repo programs and you know, all of that stuff. But you know, they're they're letting stuff roll off their balance sheet and they're not actively buying. The, the question becomes who who is that buyer? If you look at the um, Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee report that came out a couple of weeks ago, they have this grouping that's called households. Households have been buying, right? You know, you you and me have been going in there and we're seeing, oh, we can get 5%. But it's not you and me really who's doing it. Because one of the weird things with data in the United States is that households include hedge funds. I don't know. I don't know why, but that's the case. And it's hedge funds who have been doing sort of leveraged trades where they have, uh, yes, they bought the, the treasuries, but they also have done an options trade on the other side and uh, you know, are potentially in a precarious position. So th- this whole idea of like, who's going to buy the debt and at what cost, I think is a really big question. And I think you're going to have to ask yourself, you know, will the Fed let the cost of debt continue to rise, potentially disrupt the economy, potentially disrupt the entire treasury market um, and you know, create a, a big situation there? Or 
will they basically devalue the dollar and go back to a printing stance? And I'm not a betting woman, but if I was forced to go to Vegas and those were my odds, I'm thinking that at some point, um, if this dysfunction continues, and I'm not really sure why it wouldn't, I don't see any plans to, you know, cut back spending. We've got 120% debt to GDP. We've got 8% deficits, more than double uh, historical averages. I think that that's what they're going to be forced to do. And they may not call it QE. It may be yield curve control. It may be some other fancy, weird, you know, made up thing. But at the end of the day, the Fed's going to have to come in and be a buyer. And that means that they are printing more money, which means we're going to be in an extended inflation situation over time. So all of these nice little pauses that everybody's talking about and going, oh, look, this is going to be great. I just don't think that that's re- reality, given the fiscal situation of the government. You know, I was, I was having a conversation with a client that was in here this morning and, and we were discussing this. And, and the way I see it, we've got three options. And we've been here before in terms of jet, debt to GDP, but it was at the end of World War II. Yeah, and, 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 and what and what was the <laughs> and, and what was the um, backdrop at that point in time? Very different. It, yes. was, it was it was a very different country in a number of different ways. But they can either accept the fact they've got to spend less money. Okay, probably we we sort of agree. I mean, even now you got and 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 my my frustration is the best way to put it with with our political class. It goes beyond parties because we've got a new speaker yes. of the house. And what did he do? He's this two-step thing. Now it's another CR and, and nothing gets done, right. but they can, they can try to cut spending and get it to a point where it's manageable. They can try to grow the economy incredibly quickly to where all of a sudden relative to GDP, that it doesn't matter as much as it used to. Or the third step is they got to monetize it. And I, I don't see another way. I don't, in the longer term, I don't see another I'll, way. I'll add one, that. I'll add one thing. Yeah. Um, which is the flip side of try to grow the economy. That That's a capitalist perspective. Um, their perspective is to raise or grab more revenue via tax vehicles. But so there's that, not enough. You no, know, I, listen, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just telling yeah. you what they could try to do, What not just an income tax, but they could try to institute a wealth tax or an inheritance tax or something to try to bridge that gap, which we know would be disastrous and have the opposite effect. That doesn't mean that they won't actually try to do that. I, I, and you could potentially be right. And I was at, you know, speaking with somebody the other day that that and we were talking about these issues and raised this question. So why well, you just raise taxes a little bit on the top 1% or whatever. And and I said, and this person was a client too, I said, there's not enough of them. <laughs> there's, okay. not a, there's, there's not enough of the top right. 1% to make a dent here. And in terms of a wealth tax, you're, you're banking, first of all, you're banking on the idea that, that most of the wealth in this country is liquid. And it's just not. I mean, no, most but, of the. Listen, I, I'm on the same page as you. I think, yeah. you know, there you import cheese and wine from Europe. You don't import bad economic ideas. And even nine countries in Europe have abandoned a wealth tax. So I agree. I think it's a horrible idea. It doesn't mean that, you know, they're, they're the bastion of horrible ideas. So that's yeah. why we're in the situation we're in today. But it's going to, to your point though, I think it's, you know, you look at the bond market and it's, it's always been kind of the safe, stable, boring part. And for 40 years, you've generally speaking, you made money on bonds. And, right. and that to me, I mean, if you, if you're looking at the 10 year treasury, you bought a basket of 10 year treasuries three years ago, you're, you're down 30%. You know right. I mean? You got hammered in terms of what's happened to me. That's the biggest story, at least that as a 50 year old guy, that has been involved in these markets since I was in my early twenties of, of my lifetime, for sure. And connecting um, those dots, you know, when you know, one of the questions that I've always had, um, and I know um, Stan Druckenmiller brought this up too recently, is is when they had 
the ability to finance at these low rates. You know, everybody, you said it yourself, the businesses refinanced, individual refinanced. Why didn't the government refinance at the low rates? And as you dig into the data, you find out because there was nobody to buy at that level. You, you so, bring up another great point in terms yeah. of who's the buyer, and it was Japan and China, and now they're both net sellers. I mean, you know, exactly. Japan is as far as we are down the debt train. Japan's further down the road. China probably is too, and they're also which which we'll, we'll go in full rant mode here today. <laughs> One of the colossally stupid things I think that we've we or any other empire has ever done was weaponize our dollar, and it's I got it on YouTube, and it's time stamp stamp for posterity. When we kicked Russia out of the Swiss system, this isn't pro-Putin or pro-Ukraine. It's none of that. But you know, money goes where it's treated best. You do not, if you are the holder of the reserve issue of the reserve currency, you do not weaponize your currency and also create obstructions for the free flow of that of, of that currency. And we did that. And well, you so know, now I, I, this is this is a chapter two, I think, of my book. I talk I talk exactly yeah. about this. As again, if we look back in history, like this is going to be a key turning point in terms of the dollar's role in the global market and the global financial order. And I agree with you. It's, you know, it's bad enough that the Fed did a terrible job in holding the dollar stable, um, both domestically and internationally. But yes, the 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 full weaponization of the dollar instead of the, the soft weaponization of the dollar, right, um, is, is a point of no return for sure. Well, and, and let's move into um, so you know, c coming from that, where do you think this thing? I guess in terms <laughs> of the federal debt issue, right. <laughs> sometimes you get so big your head wants to explode. Yes. but you know, so I I tend to agree with you in terms of the fact I don't think they're going to have a choice but to monetize a lot of it, and even according to the CBO's own numbers, I think that all the all the revenue coming in, in the form of taxation is going to basically pay the debt in 2030 and the interest on the debt. So they've, they've got to do something. But do you see any other way out besides them monetizing several trillion dollars here over the next? I, I'm with you. I, I also do the buckets. You know, it's yeah. the, the 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 theft <laughs> of our money, which, as we know, they can only do at some point and then it becomes actually a negative proper proposition, you know, whether you believe in Laffer curve or whatever, it's just the reality at some point when you take, you know, away too much of whether it's the wealth or income, you're just going to end up collecting less revenue and it's going to be, you know, a huge drag on the economy. There's only so much they can do there. The smart and the savvy and the courageous thing would be to restructure spending we saw in France what happened when they decided they were going to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. People burnt down Paris. So the likelihood that here in the U.S. we have politicians that have the fortitude and the ability to have a clear head in discussion and go, listen, politicians have been lying to you for decades. We don't have the money. This is going to impact your life and your wealth one way or another, and we're trying to pick the way that you're going to have the least damage, the least collateral damage, and the best opportunity for the future. I just don't see that happening. That that is the you know Monty Hall door. That's the door you need to pick. I don't think they're going to pick that. I think they're going to pick the zonk, and that's going to be you know going back to that posture of monetization, QE, yield curve control, whatever you want to call it, and um, and you know a higher inflation environment. It's going to eat away at middle-class wealth, and it's going to be a very different situation. Because here's the reality, you know this as well as I do, Brent, we have a balance sheet that is an emerging market and crisis balance sheet. 
the only thing that's saving us is our reserve currency status. If, if we did not have this, this were a different country, they would be in a currency crisis right now. And we have lots of bad actors who are looking to take advantage of that, as, as you noted. So it's it's not great. So I, I, I think if I'm, you know, if I'm picking which one they're going to pick is not the one that I would pick. But I think that's probably what's going to happen. And the likelihood that they try to throw some more taxes on top of that is because they're stupid is probably a, a likelihood, too. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And I do think that a lot of Americans would be open to someone just very honestly for a, for a start not lying to them and just saying, look, here's the reality and, and put it put it in the context that that uh, that people could understand in terms of bring, break it down to a family's budget, family for yeah. making, you know, whatever the number is. Here's really what's owed. How do you make this work? Yeah. And, and paint it to the people that way. Unfortunately, it's like I think of, you know, the 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 political and giants and leadership that we had in the 20th century, not just the United States, but around the world. It's like, I'm looking across the landscape now and I don't see any of those people. I see some people with pretty good ideas. I see some people that, that, um, that I prefer more than those, but I don't see that, that figure on the horizon that can, that can really clearly articulate a vision, the American people, what, what needs to happen from here. Yeah. And as Bill said that, you know, it's a hard thing to get elected on. (laughs) It is. Yeah. Your producer says, I, I tend to agree with that. And it's it's unfortunate. But, you know, I've had this discussion with my husband before. You know, we're in a very fortunate position. We don't need Social Security. We would be willing to opt out of it if that meant we would get reforms and a balanced budget and, you know, appropriate taxation and all these things. You know, if we if we knew that would actually matter. What we know is a reality is that if we agreed to something like that, they would just take that and then continue on, you know, with the moral hazard that they have, because that that's the problem with the structure we have right now is the people who make the decisions um, don't have any repercussions and the benefits they get for being elected and whatnot come with lying and kicking problems down the road and not trying to solve them. So until we figure out a way to get more accountability into the system and to change that incentive model, it's a really tough order, um, even though it's the the right thing to do and what will save the financial foundation of the country uh, for everybody's you know children and grandchildren and for people around the world. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch it play out. Um, now let's talk about your most recent book. So I, I'm a huge, I think the foundation of any free society is private property. Because you you've got to have you've got to have ownership of your stuff of the product of your labor. That's 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 what gives you the reason to innovate, to grow, to take risks. If you can grow that, expand that. Now let's talk about your most recent book, which is another uplifting <laughs> novel or another one, story, yes. another another really happy one. Uh, you will own nothing, and like I said, about eighty percent through it. I'm not done it yet. I picked it up last week. Tell me a little bit about what what was it that um the impetus what encouraged you to, to dive down this rabbit hole? Cause it's a really important one, I think. Thank you. Yeah. So as I was sort of talking to people and people in this country are doing all the right things, right? They're working hard, they're saving, they're investing. And many are, are just finding it really hard to get ahead. And I feel like there are these barriers to seizing the American dream. 
And so I was trying to kind of connect the dots there. So as I was listening to kind of all these different issues people were contending with, certainly some of the social credit issues that came about with COVID, um, the possibility of a central bank digital currency, the issues with Wall Street coming into the single family home market and competing with people to buy homes, these ridiculous prices that uh, colleges are, are charging young people. Um, and really doing this wholesale transfer of wealth from the, the young to these college administrators for degrees in many cases that don't pay a return on investment. Um, Wall Street or uh, te big tech trying to rent your life back to you as a subscription or service. I, I kept like trying to, to put a connector through this. And then one day as I'm noodling on all this, it sort of hit me. And it's like, oh, it's that meme I saw on social media you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, uh, which came from the World Economic Forum, which we know is a group that's littered with the business and political elite. So when you see this, you're like, there's no way that these people who benefited from property ownership and property rights could be predicting the end of private property in just a handful of years. And then I went and I watched the video, which is still on their Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it this week's stream. And that was their number one prediction for 2030. It came from their Global Futures Council. You'll own nothing. You'll be happy. So a few things stood out to me. Um, one is somebody like you has advocated for wealth creation. Uh, you you kind of opened the door here, but you know, wealth comes from ownership, right? You have to own assets that can retain their value or hopefully appreciate in value in order to grow your wealth. Um, and so, you know, the idea that uh, you wouldn't have that and people throughout history who haven't had that have not been happy. They have not been free. In many cases, they've starved or even lost their lives. Um, I thought that was just very crazy. And then as I sort of dissected the phrasing of it, it's you'll own nothing. It's not will own nothing. So it, it was very clear to me that the people who are all sitting around making these predictions don't view themselves in the same realm because they're all out you know, buying assets and a lot of hard assets um, themselves, but they're not seeing that for everybody else. And in fact, they're trying to project to people, oh, you'll be happy. Like, wouldn't it be great if you just give that all up to somebody else? Um, not sort of, sort of trying to force that down somebody else's throat so that if you accept this, then they don't have to, you know, work harder to make it happen. So it, it's very sinister, um, not just from a wealth creation standpoint, but from a, a sovereignty and an, an agency standpoint, you know, in order to be free, you have to have ownership because if, if you own nothing, then basically somebody else owns you. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that you talk a lot in your book about the convenience of it and um, streaming services for music, for example, <laughs> I love music and I've got albums and records that i love i own them on vinyl and like one and one of, one of my great joys is at nighttime if like my wife and kids are asleep is i might pour a little bit of whiskey and put the headphones on so i don't wake anybody up and just listen through a vinyl record but i also love my spotify <laughs> and i love my apple music and i love a lot of the subscription services that i have but in, in I, had a, I had a discussion recently with a state planning attorney we we're talking about digital assets and I'm also thinking on my iPhone, I've got 57, 58,000 pictures. I've got 5,000 videos. Like, but my entire life and really since the year 2005 is chronicled on this on this phone. I don't technically own any of that. And yeah. and, and it was a discussion brought up to me. We we're doing some some changes to the estate plan. And 
what are you going to do about your digital assets? Like you don't own it. Oh, no, it's my stuff. My wife has my pet. You don't, you, you don't, you're, I'm the product in that case. Everything that's on that phone that there's data being poured into every single day is really not mine. So you, you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So this, this is the big tech model. Your life is a subscription or, or a service and they rent it back to you. And in many cases it is convenient. Um, but, you know, I think at some point very soon <laughs> we need to ask about our digital rights and obviously um, protecting our digital rights from the government. But, you know, at the same time, we don't have that protection in the digital sphere. And that is a, a big concern of mine that these tech companies are really becoming de facto governments. And so the, the things, whether it be speech or property that we're used to having some level of, of protection of our natural rights from doesn't exist when it comes to tech. Right. And I, well, I heard something really that I thought was chilling. And and again, this is from both sides of the aisle. Um, Nikki Haley <laughs> came out actually, I think it was yesterday and floated the idea that everyone had to have a registered online yes. identity on, on some of these social media platforms. What that's obviously new news, but what did you see that one? What's your take? Yeah, that on went that? over like a lead balloon. I think that was Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley. Yeah. Who, fl yeah. who floated that. And pretty much everyone came together and went, that's a terrible idea. Um, but, you know, that's the, this, what the central planners want. And there's always a manufactured crisis and a reason why that we, they need things for security and, you know, push as a way for us to give up more and more of our rights. And that's a, a place where, and we've seen it before, tech and government, um, you know, come together to sort of collude uh, in terms of this infringement. And so I think it, it's something that people need to be very thoughtful about. I think we need more action around that. And again, in some cases, it just may make sense for you to, to give up your rights, but I think you need to have the lens. Um, and particularly when you get to the bigger things, you know, for something small, not that big of a deal, perhaps. Um, but for some of the bigger things, it is a big deal. And I think with AI and some of the things that come down the pike, it's going to become even more more important because um, you know if so if more social credit takes hold, you know we saw that kind of percolate during COVID, um, but you know at the end of the day, if you have a phone, you don't actually own anything other than a brick of glass and microchips and plastic. If you know Apple, who has been great on privacy, but they could get you know different people who are in charge there who aren't um, decides Brent we don't like what you did we're going to cut you off from your iCloud account they might you might not ever have access to those you know fifty five thousand pictures or whatever it is so um, you know are you doing the things to protect if something's important to you protect it and make sure that you have secured what is yours and what is important and valuable to you however you place the value on. You're going to give me a segue into, into a, another thing that I want to discuss with you here. Um, central bank digital currency. Because yeah. to me, this is the single, I don't care if you are libertarian, you're Democrat, you're Republican, Greenport, it doesn't matter. Everyone needs to push back against this. And so what makes a central bank di digital currency different than me owning some Bitcoin in a digital wallet? Okay, first of all, I think you're in my brain and I'm just going to send you on the road. <laughs> you can do my <laughs> my book tour for me because like we're just simpatico on all these things. I'm used to arguing with people, Brent. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, central bank digital currency, I agree, is the number one most frightening thing. 
And the difference there is that they're trying to piggyback off the interest in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency. The interest is there from all the reasons we talked about. People don't trust the Fed or the government or fiat currency. They know they're going to continue to, to base that currency. And so they want something that's decentralized that can be a better store of value. And so some people are tr turning to Bitcoin um, you know, as well as, as other assets for that. What the government, the Fed are doing is going, well, we don't want to lose the power. You know, if we control the money, we control the people. Um, so let's kind of trick people who think that this is interesting into giving us more power. And this has already happened in, in you know, plenty of countries around the world. There's been a pilot program here in the U.S. with the Fed and a bunch of financial um company, financial services companies. There's been principles put out at the retail level for the G7 country related to central bank digital currency. And the rub is that they have complete transparency on every dollar you spend. So if they have these digital dollars that they control at the Fed level, and that is retail facing, meaning you, you know, the, the currency that's in the hands of you, the consumer, they can have the ability to turn that currency off at their whim. They have, could have the ability to force you to spend it in certain places or lose it. It's a very easy conduit for them to get people on board with something like UBI um, or you know further debasement of dollars by tricking people who are financially literate to illiterate to say, hey, turn in one US dollar and I'll give you a hundred digital dollars and People go, oh my God, I'm going to be a digital dollar millionaire. Okay, great. Well, what is that going to buy you? It's about the purchasing power, not about the the headline number. But we saw this during the, the stimulus checks. You know, people don't understand these things, and even though they've lived through it now, I still don't think they understand these things. So um, it's completely terrifying. Whether it's a tool that they use, you know, to implement social credit, to push their agenda, or to even just, you know, control the inflation that they've caused, you know, that will take away, you know, complete freedom. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are looking to things like physical precious metals, cryptocurrency, other hard assets right now to round out their portfolio with some real hedges not just because of the actions of the the government that are you know clear, but because of the possibility of a central bank digital currency. It's one of the the number one issues, um, you know, not only that I see, but as I go around and talk to people across the country, people who are informed, it's their number one issue. It's by far for me because it's it's an ability to turn your money off for what yeah. you use it for. And so even on, you know, and the, the, the counter argument is, well, if you get nothing to hide then who cares if people know where it's spent, but it can, you can drill down to the point where we've got a climate emergency and this isn't pro or anti global warming, but you know what you, you've had your, you've had enough red meat because red meat, the methane from the cows, I mean, it, you can get down into the weeds that much to control your purchases. And if, if you truly, Friends, own... I don't like what you posted on Facebook today, we're just going to put you in a timeout. You can't spend anything. So. Yeah, exactly. Or, or you, you know, you burned your carbon carbon allotment for, or yeah, you've said something where, let's say during COVID, because let's be honest, the the initial, the initial co a lot of the COVID conspiracies early on were were proven true. You know, toward the tail end of it, and so you didn't get the vaccine. Today. Sorry, yeah. and, sorry, and, and, you can't have can't have access to the money you've earned. I mean, just think about how sincere that is. Yeah. Yeah, and that that to me again, coming back to the private property issue. I mean, that to me is is the hot button thing. It's something that um, I don't hear 
spoken about very much. The fact that you address it, I think it's hugely important because it's, it's something that has to be stopped or else you do not have autonomy over your life. And I don't care left, right in the middle, whatever, whatever your viewpoint might be. If you want to own your life, you've got to own, you've got to own how you spend your dollars and not have that dictated to you by some faraway source. It's just fundamentally at my core, believe that. Amen. Well, Carol, I, I, I cannot thank you enough. I've kept you now for, for about almost 50 minutes. Um, Awesome conversation. If people want to learn more about your work, obviously your books and all the stuff that you're doing, how do they find you and where do they go to, if they, if they want to educate themselves more on some of these topics we discussed today? I'm hiding, Brent. I'm, I'm hoping that nobody finds me. No, um, the uh, <laughs> so a, a few things. Um, one is I spend a lot of time on Twitter, or I guess we're calling it X now, at Carol J.S. Roth. That's my handle across sort of social platforms. I have a personal newsletter at carolroth.com slash news that people can sign up for. It's free. I have a legacy and wishes planning system. You were talking about, you know, planning for your digital assets, you know, a whole roadmap of, you know, what's all your stuff and what do you want to have done with it so that your loved ones can figure that out, whether it's an emergency, an aging issue, someone passing, a hundred bucks, super easy at futurefile.com. And uh, I think that sort of covers the the big stuff. And the books are obviously available wherever fine books are sold. Think about supporting your local small business bookstore or going to bookshop.org to have it fulfilled through a small business bookstore. But if you like the big guys, you can get it there too. Awesome. And I really appreciate it. I do want to end with this because I know we we covered a lot of really heavy topics today. And, and I say, and I get calls from clients about a lot of this stuff too. And, and when you talk about some of these issues, it can definitely sound apocalyptic. But, you know, like I said to clients is if you, tr- I'm in a fundamentally optimistic business. You know, if you don't believe that human beings are going to continue to create and innovate and do great things and, and move, move this whole, whatever the story is that we're involved in, move it forward then what the hell are we doing here? You know, to be honest with you. And, and I think that to quote Churchill, and I've done it several times, you know, counter America do the wrong thing up until they got to do the right thing. And, and, and I'm hoping that we're coming to one of those points right now. So it's not all, when I talk about these issues, it's not all doom and gloom. It's really about, I want to create awareness. People need to know what's going on because it's, it's very easy to go about your life and you're running your business and we've all got so many things happening but you, you just need to be aware that these things are happening because if you bring awareness to some of these topics, then all of a sudden people say, "Hey, wait a second! You know, this isn't what I want. This isn't this isn't my goal for my life or my kids." Um, and and I, that's that's really what I'm trying to create here today. And, and to for you for coming on and discussing uh, these very heavy issues for the last hour. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Now, my pleasure. And just to add to that, you know, I think that preparation is key. It gives you the space that if you've done the preparation, then you don't have to worry about this stuff on a day-to-day basis and have it be a burden. Um, But I also think, you know, we've been in a very privileged position where things have gone really well. Like we've been in a really great position throughout history and we haven't really had to fight in the way that so many other generations have for, you know, all the wonderful abundance that we have and all of our blessings. And so, yeah, I mean, that's part of your responsibility. If you want to have this great outcome for yourself and for the future, you got to get loud on some of these topics. And it is so interesting to me for all of the marches and protests that we have, when people say the economy and you know their money is the most important thing, I have not seen one protest that we've had that has been sure. financial or has been directed at any of um, you know the, the people spending in Congress, the Fed, the Treasury, nada. So 
you know, we always want to be peaceful. We always want to have a, you know, a, a plan and, and a reason and a, a clear objective. Um, but, you know, if I'm somebody in Congress and people aren't marching about this and they're marching about 10 other things, even though you say this is your most important topic, I don't believe you because you're right. not acting that way. And now, you know, why <laughs> Carol is one of my favorite people in the entire world. Yeah, it's thoughtful stuff. It's time. The time has come for us to be thoughtful. It's not, it's not, it's not apocalyptic. <laughs> it's, yes. it's time for people to think like grownups and to be thoughtful and to put and put some intention and purpose behind their policies and what they're doing in exercise and awareness. Otherwise, a lot the underlying theme of everything you've discussed is that you hand the power to somebody else. And people, even really corrupt people, want power. And that's what we have to be the most aware of in. in in my opinion, that's my simple observation for whatever it's worth. Carol, thank you. It's really been great. It's really been great to have you on with Brent. Brent is always, uh, you know, this podcast is, it covers a lot of different topics. It's very interesting. Uh, we know how to get a hold of Carol, even though she's in hiding. Uh, how do we get a hold? How do people get a hold of you if they're listening to the podcast and maybe want to reach out for a conversation? Yeah, social media, most active on LinkedIn. So if you search me on LinkedIn, I'm there. Uh, call the office here, 602-255-0555. Either uh, Susan or Andy or Kayla or myself will pick up and they've got access to my calendar and love to, to discuss these topics at greater length. And uh, website, mpadvisorsaz.com or smartmoneysimplified.com. And that's got a lot of ways to contact us as well. Super fantastic. Our final thank you, of course, goes to the listeners. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you found this as interesting and as uh, fascinating as 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 I did. It certainly, and it does beg the question: If you're not a subscriber, why aren't you? There's a subscribe button right there. You just hit it. That way, you don't have to think about where did I hear Brent or when did I hear Brent. The next podcast will be delivered to you automatically. You don't have to worry about missing another podcast. On behalf of Brent and everybody at MP Advisors, I'm Bill Tucker, and I want to leave you with this one simple thought. Don't wait to live your best life. Live it today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.